This episode of Inside Acting is brought to you in part by Samovar Tea. Find out more at samovarlife.com. And by listeners like you. To find out more and make a donation, visit insideactingpodcast.com. Welcome to episode 54 of Inside Acting. I'm AJ Meyer. And I'm Trevor Alga. And on this podcast, we interview folks from the entertainment industry, actors, writers, directors, producers, producers, reps. Uh, That's a little hint for uh, what's to come. And we package it up in this podcast and deliver it to an iTunes, iTunes, iTunes store <laughs> near you. It's true, and uh, we don't pretend to know everything. Uh, AJ and I are, are really just two dudes with a podcast. We... We uh, we have this podcast because we're looking for the answers, not because we necessarily have them. So, Ooh, I like um, that. There we go. New tagline. Like um, we have so, this podcast because we're looking for the answers. Indeed, indeed. We don't necessarily have them. So, um, if anybody listening to this um, hears this podcast and disagrees with something we say, or has a different take on it, or wants to argue with us, or chime in and and compliment what we say. Um, Go ahead and do it. There's a lot of different ways to get in touch with us, and uh, the home base for all those different uh, methods of interaction are online at our website, InsideActingPodcast.com. And speaking of which, we've got um, an email and a voicemail, right, on, on the, yep. today's episode? Yep. Rock and roll, some, some really interesting stuff, um, and as well as um, our uh, interview with... Um, man, how do you... You can't really put this guy in a box. Another multi-hyphenate, but in a completely different way. Screenwriter... Producer rep, producer uh, Tim Morell, who uh, now has his own uh, company, just recently started called Morell Media, um, which is going to be uh, uh, as uh, ligature media for us, a landing base for all of his sort of creative ideas. Um, so he just basically, you know, did the same thing we did, just started his own uh, production company. Very, very cool. Um, so look forward to that. <laughs> All right, so hey everybody, hey AJ, what's going on, dude? What's going hey on? Hey there, big guy. <laughs> hey, before we catch up today, we wanted to uh, just give a quick shout out to uh, longtime listener, very loyal listener and supporter Denise Fleener. Um, she recently sent in uh, a very generous donation. And uh, Denise, you know how we feel about those donations, so uh, thank you <laughs> and very... And you as well. Yes, and you. you as well, absolutely. So thank you very much. Um, she also tweeted me over the weekend and told me that she booked a, uh, a big kind of project, which is really exciting. Woohoo! So uh, congratulations on that. Thank you for the support, and uh, thanks for listening. I think it's been a long time since we've specifically mentioned that we like to hear from you guys when you are booking, when, you, when you're having success. Um, please share that with us. We, we'd love to hear... That our listeners are out there, um, either creating their own work, um, and or you know booking or or what have you. So um, you know, please uh, don't hesitate to get in touch, uh, even if you feel like it's not just a question and, and more of like a, a success that you're having. Yeah, bring on the warm fuzzies. <laughs> bring on the warm fuzzies. <laughs> Hashtag warm fuzzies. So uh, what's new with you, dude? Um, well, I'm I'm really. I know I, th- I know what your catch-up is going to be about, and I'm so excited to talk about it that I almost want to skip mine, but I have this very interesting story um, 
that sort of ties all these ideas together from back to like episode one. Oh, wow. Inside acting. All right. Cool. Um, Bring it on. It's like the drama of my representation, sort of. So things are really slow right now. We've talked about it, you know, um, multiple times over the last few weeks. Things are really slow. So we haven't been beginning a lot of opportunities. Gone out on a couple of commercial things, you know. Um, I got what is potentially one of the biggest auditions of my life, though, in this last week. Wow. Which is just crazy considering how slow it is. I went out for this feature film. Uh, the essentially lead, I mean, it's an ensemble cast, but the sort of young male ingenue in this feature film, which has already been cast except for this one role. And the cast is Robert De Niro, Diane Keaton, Amanda Seyfried, Catherine Heigl, and Topher Grace. That's who's already on board. Wow. <clears throat> and it was to play... Uh, Robert De Niro and Diane Keaton's adopted son opposite Amanda Seyfried to play Amanda Seyfried's fiance. I was like, obviously shitting bricks, but I felt so good and so comfortable going into that audition. And I, and I think it was just all this, you know, talk that we've, you know, I, once I got there, I had like the, the mantra of, of, um, the new British school guys going in my head. I was like all day, the, the day before and the day of, I was like, it's about the work. 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 Just to remind myself that I was just going in to act. Yeah. I was just going to go in and have my meeting with these casting people and, and act and get an opportunity to act that day. And I got really excited and, and the material was fantastic. So I went in and I was just like super comfortable <clears throat> The read went really well. Casting assistant putting me on camera. Casting assistant says, wow, you did everything that I've been giving people notes on without me having to give you any notes. That's pretty good. That's pretty good feedback. I was like feeling super confident about it. A couple days go by. Don't hear anything. Get an email from my manager saying, um, your read was great, but you don't look noticeably Latino enough. Which, um, like I said, it, it, it was uh, the adopted son of... Robert De Niro and Diane Keaton, they adopted him from, from Ecuador or something. Uh-huh. So <clears throat> yet another thing we've talked about on the podcast comes up, which is the whole thing about like race and ethnicity and my sort of being ethnically ambiguous. So I sent her this email back, not really upset, but just like kind of frustrated, kind of joking where I was like, what are we going to do? Like I'm too dark to play like these white bread, like football player, college frat boy parts. And now they're telling me I'm not, I'm not brown enough. Like I, I'm going to, I'm confused. Yeah. I'm confused. I'm like, you know, a dog named stay. Come here, stay, come here, stay, come here, stay. So, so I'm like, awesome. I, so, and she's like, she's like, you know, don't worry about it. They said your read was fantastic. You know, it just, you weren't right for it. And you know, something's going to happen. Something will come. Something will come. And I was like, all right, couple more days go by and I get this phone call from my manager's assistant saying, Hey, just wanted to give you a heads up. Uh, the folks over at stone manor Salners had a meeting today. Um, and apparently your name came up and Scott manners, who's one of the partners from stone manners was hearing some really awesome feedback about you and told his assistant to give us a call and bring you in. He wants to meet with you. Now, for those of you who have been paying attention to this drama that is my representation, you'll remember that I am not signed with Stone Manners. 
I'm being hip pocketed by one of the agents there, right? Yeah. This is the same guy who, when <clears throat> Bobby Moses went into his office to say, like, you got to take a look at this kid, showed him my headshot, like all this stuff, basically got chewed out. Like, I'm not interested, blah, 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 blah. This is the same guy. Oh, wow. A little 180 action. Well, it was, I mean, it just feels really good, you know? It's like, yes. Yeah. Like, I'm not even, yeah. you know, it's not, I'm not mad. I'm not like, haha, you're getting your just desserts or like, whatever. No, it's not about that. It's like, it's like, it's, it's very validating. Yeah. You know? So, Wednesday of this week, I have a meeting with Scott Manners, who's one of the partners. He basically runs the LA office because they're by coastal. He runs the LA office of this agency. And I don't know what's going to come of that. And obviously, we'll, you know, we'll have to talk about it in the next episode. But the fact that I'm even going to be, the fact that he even called me in, the fact that he was hearing good feedback about me, like all that stuff, I just, just completely like blew me away. It was like the craziest week. I'm like, oh, you know, it's really slow right now. Nothing's really going on. And then all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. All this stuff happened. That's great, man. You know? Sweet. So crazy story like i said all this stuff you know sort of mixed in there from like being great. confident in the audition to the ethnicity thing to like i feel i feel like this is just like you have to write a memoir or something <laughs> like 10 years from now you have to be like everybody has their own story and their own journey here's my, here's my freaking crazy, crazy story one. well you know what it reminded me of is um and, and someone if one of our listeners knows the truth behind this please let me know because i've never I've been bad and lazy, and I haven't actually gone out and, and tried to do the research to find out if it's true. But I heard this story about Vin Diesel. Uh, have you heard this story about like how he was having a really hard time um, uh, getting booking roles and stuff because one, he was ethnically ambiguous. So they didn't really know what to do with him. So he wrote, directed, and starred in um, this mockumentary about himself called Multi-Ethnic. That really? got shown at a film festival at USC, and Spielberg saw it and cast him in Saving Private Ryan. No way. Yeah. And the rest, as they say, is history, right? So I, it reminded me of that. Like, his frustration, he, he must have been feeling the same yeah. the same you yeah. know, sort of frustration. So I'm sitting at home waiting for Spielberg to call. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's, that's great, dude. I can't wait to hear how this, uh, how this goes. Yeah, it'll be interesting, right? Very cool. Yeah. Um, so, okay, enough about me. I want to talk about you because I know what you're going to talk about and I'm so excited about it. I like, I was doing backflips like all week. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, the short version is that I, I wrote a I wrote a short film script and, and shot it this weekend um, with a bunch of amazing, amazing, amazing people. Um, it's really kind of hard for me to talk about right now because I, A, I don't have any perspective on it and B, I have been riding the waves of self-doubt since the camera started ro- since since really since since some of the people signed on to it and we're like yeah this is cool I'll do this well let um, let me uh let me tell our listeners from the outsider's perspective then because Trevor wrote a one scene you know short film that is actually really good everything in it is very subtle the exposition is very well laid out he put together an amazing team can we say who was involved? Yeah, of yeah. course. So he got Mark Gant, previous uh, IAP guest, to direct it. This uh, um, amazing actress, Alexis Boozer, to play opposite him. Carolina Gropa, who has um, been a, a longtime listener and fan and, and participant in the podcast, produced it. And 
the short film that I've talked about on here before, uh, Misusing Irony, uh, which was shot by this really amazing DP cinematographer named Kyle Klutz. Trevor saw my short film and was like, I want that guy to shoot my film and sent him an email and got him. So, any like, basically, I just want to say all that because there is no excuse. Like, <laughs> Trevor just did it. He just made it happen. And it reminded me of, like, watching Gary Vaynerchuk, like, call, you know, some, some like, just do cold calls and just be like, you know, hey, uh, I got this idea for, like, this blog. I was wondering if you want to advertise on it. And people were like, uh, yeah, I don't know who you are, but sure. Like, <clears throat> you, you, you just, you just went for it, man. And it all worked out. And, and I was there on, on, on set on the day of, and like the amount of equipment, professionalism, um, people like hands, crew that you had there, everything was freaking amazing. And yes, for all of you listening, Trevor's acting was awesome as well. Um, <clears throat> so I've been sort of drilling this into his head all week because i'm like it was awesome every aspect of it was amazing and i can't wait to see the finished product because the the footage was gorgeous oh god the footage looks so gorgeous it's totally rational like everything you just said is there but my brain is still going off and it's just it's just going to take some time and and when i see the footage i'll probably be like what the hell was i thinking this is great because i do this a lot with stuff that i shoot i'm just like terrified of seeing it because i'm convinced i'm a cheeseball actor and then I see it, then I'm like, oh, I, I that was actually kind of good in that, you know? <laughs> like, awesome. so, and Mark did say, he said, he said, you know, he said to me a couple times, he said, you're, I think you're really going to be happy with a lot of this. Um, so I'm, I'm excited, but I'm terrified, <laughs> but I'm excited. Uh, and it was just an immense honor to, to work with all those people. So, well, you know, at the end of the day, congratulations, man, because y- you, you did something that we've been talking about doing for a year and a half you know i know and that was it happened so fast may have been small scale but it wasn't really you know the fact that you did it at all was awesome so congrats cool thanks dude thanks So uh, we've got um, a voicemail and an email that we wanted to respond to on today's episode. Yes, sir, Bob. Which one are we going with for first? Um, let's trip? do the uh, let's do the email first because this is a, a good email. This is from a gentleman named Dennis Baker, who is uh, a friend of the podcast, also very active in the uh, the LA theater community, um, and he has a question about submitting through email. Uh, he says, should actors submit to casting directors through email when it comes to a specific role? Of course, the role they're submitting for has to be spot-on perfect. People might send a postcard or headshot, but a lot of times the casting notice says electronic submissions only. Uh, and then he kind of goes on to talk about why he might or might not do that. Um, what's your gut reaction to submitting via email to casting directors, assuming you have their work email? And he does make he does say specifically their work email not their personal email. right right well i think it's important to know or, or at least make an attempt to know if they like to receive um communication in that way because if you are spamming their inbox i mean if you're sending them an email and they don't like receiving emails from actors then they're from their perspective it's going to feel like their inbox is being spammed 
um, <clears throat> and that's just going to put a bad taste in their mouth. But if you know, you know, like you said, electronic submissions only. I don't know if he means like through email or through the electronic submissions websites like Actors Access and, now, and uh, LA Casting. Um, but if you know that that casting director likes to receive emails with links, then then I say go for it. I, I talk about this in my digital actor workshop. Um, you know, obviously it's difficult to know which casting directors do or do not like receiving emails, but I've heard a do- you know at least a dozen or so over the course of the last you know couple of years of not only interviewing them on the podcast but also go- going and seeing them at the trade shows. Uh, like ActorFest, to say that they, they they prefer email to hard submission because they can click on a link and, and go online and watch your reel hmm. or, t- or check out photos mm-hmm. and stuff like that. How do you feel about this? I, I, I am all about electronic submissions. Um, and I think if the casting director willingly gives out their email address and says, yeah, you know, if you see a project that you're that you're right for, go ahead and email me your headshot and, and a little note that says why, what role you're submitting for, what project. But I, I feel like that's not very common. Um, and I feel like if you are going to do that, you should have expressed permission from the, the casting director to do that because it just becomes after a point. I mean, we've all had the experience of getting a hundred emails a day and after a point, you're just like, it just becomes white noise and you're just like, I just want to get this down to a manageable number and you start deleting stuff before you've even really looked at it. Right. And you're just like, okay, what is this? Bed, bath, beyond delete, you know, then it's delete, delete, delete. Okay, cool. Right. Message from my friend. Okay. Put that in a folder to read later. Okay. Then. Right. And so I feel like you can sort get like into the- that land and the casting director might hand off the email <clears throat> account to an assistant and say, mm-hmm. get rid of all the actor submissions. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. But um, it's sort of like the digital version of them, you know, taking the headshot and resume and cover letter and throwing it into the trash. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, my gut reaction is no, but if they've said, yeah, go for it, then then go for it. You know, yeah, certainly cheaper. Yeah, I th- well, I think the I think the important thing here is that you know that they they like to receive emails or they 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 actually read their emails that they receive. Um, and, and keep in mind too that this is a very specific case because I believe that Dennis is asking asking specifically about an actor submitting, you know, self submitting submitting for a role directly to the casting director, which if you have a representation, um, shouldn't be happening um, unless you've already had a conversation with your agent and or manager. Because if you do that and you haven't talked to them, <clears throat> you could potentially um, you know, mess up a, a relationship there between, the, uh, between your reps and the casting director. Yeah. You know, um, who was it like? Wasn't it like a Chris... Uh, Dietrich, wasn't it your, you know, who was on the podcast, but I think it was your, one of your agents who said one time that, um, they wished you had told them about a mistake on a breakdown because yeah, that, yeah. that could have reinforced the relationship that they had with the casting director. Yeah. You know, so if you're kind of cutting out the middleman as it were and going directly to the casting director without having had a conversation with your agent, it might make your agent feel burned. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. um, so I guess Trevor and I kind of had the same the same response, which is that if you know that it's okay, then then go for it. Right on. Well, thanks for the question, Dennis. Hope that uh, shed some light on on that that subject. And of course, if anybody else has any sort of opinions or ideas or thoughts on that, please get in touch with us. Yeah, or for you work in a casting director office, you know, oh, yeah. as an assistant or something, great. it'd be really awesome to hear what you the person you work for prefers. Yeah. Um, we got this really awesome voicemail from. Uh, woman named uh, Mickey, I think. But this one definitely has no right or wrong answer. And it's sort of a very actor um, thing to have happen where you, we kind of, as actors, get stuck between a rock and a hard place because we're trying to 
brand ourselves. Hi, my name is Mickey Yamashita, and I'm an actress and writer in the Los Angeles market. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Uh, my question is regarding LinkedIn. Uh, Bonnie Gillespie wrote in her show facts column about this a few weeks ago, yeah, and that. she said that this was the year that all the actors decided to hop on the LinkedIn bandwagon. And that's fine, they just but the public. problem is that some of us have rival uh, jobs that are public, in rather high-end corporate America, which is the primary sector that utilizes LinkedIn. I'm one of those people that have those dual career paths, and so many people in both these worlds are starting to get confused by my LinkedIn profile because I get requests to connect with everyone from top executives at investment banks uh, to some choreographer that I randomly did a 99-seat showcase with back in 2008. So how am I supposed to keep this jumble of confusing information organized so that it avoids confusion for those seeking me out in either arena? And I guess that leads me to the larger question of how to navigate and compartmentalize your overall online presence. Uh, because some Fortune 500 CEO looking for a new assistant is not going to be happy being directed to my comedy demo reel. You know? <laughs> so I hope you can speak to that. Uh, again, my name is Mickey, and uh, I'm calling from Los Angeles. Thanks. Wow. Isn't that a fun question? That is. I, uh, I heard this voicemail and I was like, ooh, I can't wait to talk about that on the podcast. <laughs> wow, man. This is, uh, this is, this is decidedly epic. Um, yeah. Gosh. What, what are your thoughts? Um, I, oh man, I have to so put you on the spot. I, yeah. Thanks. <laughs> I have so many, I have so many. I, I, first of all, what we're talking, what we're really talking about here is, is brand, your branding, right? Your online branding. Yeah. That's what we're talking about. And so, um, as somebody who's an actor who also has a thrival job, you have sort of dual, uh, branding. You've, you're, you've been double branded as it were. Um, so you have your sort of your actor brand and you have your, um, you know, whatever corporate America in this case, uh, you know, thrival job brand. And so how do you, you know, sort of put both out there, uh, to the world. Well, you know, there's all of these different, you know, social media or, or social networking websites that you um, use to kind of create your online brand. And I think that in the case of LinkedIn, personally, they have their their branding, LinkedIn's branding, has sort of branded themselves as being like the social network for corporate America, the social yeah. network for... That's what like, she, she mentioned, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's okay to, to kind of stick with in that if it was me, like I, I'm on LinkedIn mm-hmm. and I don't, I, I put that I am an actor, but I don't push really hard for, you know, to connect with um, other people from, you know, the entertainment industry in Los Angeles. I, I mean, it's, I have some connections with, uh, other people at, like the center theater group because you and I work there. Um, you know, uh, people who I did go to college with and, 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 you know, have acted with, but I don't, <clears throat> I guess what it is, I don't really use it as, it's not really like a tool that I use in, in that, in that respect. You know, I'll be honest. I don't even know why I have a LinkedIn profile. Having a LinkedIn profile is not going to get you I I don't think an audition and it's certainly not going to get you a job 
your audition is going to get you a job. The, the work that you do is going to get you a job. And by job, I mean gig. I mean acting gig. I'm talking acting jobs right now. So that being said, focus on, I, I think, focus on your thrival job aspect on LinkedIn because you may actually get some kind of interview or something along those lines because of that. Mm. And, 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 and use other modes of branding yourself online as an actor besides LinkedIn, you know, whatever, whatever that happens to be creating a, fa- a Facebook fan page or using about.me or having your own personal website. I just can't really see LinkedIn being, you know, I just don't see it really being used as sort of like this. I, I can't see casting directors going on there and, and, and looking for actors. Does it make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, like absolutely. I, I guess I just absolutely. can't see like, jobs coming from it i don't i agree with you i don't see that happening either um but i'm thinking of brian vermeer's episode all the way back to episode three where Mm -hmm. he said this is a relationship business and so many people are multifaceted and and do have you know they're they're people you want to connect with them on a people level and i'm also now thinking of miata idoga's interviews where she said that she went to interview with new representation and they barely talked about acting they talked mostly about like you know, their pets or their, or Miata's financial education business, like all these kind of different things. And they connected as people. And I feel like LinkedIn is good for that aspect of it. I don't think there's really much acting work or writing work in Mickey's case, or, or really much entertainment work on that aspect, but you never know there, there might, it, in a year, there might be some sort of like sector that emerges on LinkedIn for that and it might blow up. But I think it's important to kind of be everywhere you can and, and, be fully who you are. You know, we all are actors, but we're also so many other things. And if we've got four thrival jobs in different areas, it's like, why not have that there? You know? Yeah. You don't want the investment banker to come across your comedy reel, you know, or, or the, you know, you don't want these things to overlap in some cases, but I think that's, uh, not necessarily a bad thing. Always. Maybe, maybe that's just a case of being careful what you put, online and where you put it. Yeah, I was going to say the internet is forever. You know, it's a very yeah. public place and <clears throat> I guess they could always google you. The other yeah. the other kind of hilarious solution I thought of earlier was um, using a different name. You know, using a <laughs> prof- which we've talked about on the podcast yeah, before yeah. like having a professional um stage name. Of course, yeah. Um so that if they were to google, you know, Mickey's name um because they were, you know, some CEO looking for an assistant, and they wanted to know more, more about this um, person. They they would they would find information that she wanted under the Mickey brand, as opposed to the whatever other brand, you know, mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. she had uh, yeah. her acting brand, so to speak. It's a potentially overkill solution, but it's a solution yeah. nonetheless. You know, yeah, um, yeah. Mm. I, I get I get what you're saying. I totally get what you're saying. I, part of me wants to go like, well. You know, if they do see your comedy reel, and that's why they decide not to hire you, did you want to work for that person at, yeah, in the right, first place? Right, you know, yeah. but is is that me just being like a snarky actor? Like, yeah. this, oh, this is who I am, and you know, you have to <laughs> accept me for for who I am. Yeah, or, I don't know if there is a right answer to this question. Oh, certainly not. Um, certainly not. It's or, like or I said, it's like you're answer, between a you rock know? and a hard place. You know, yeah, it's really tough. So I, yeah, um, maybe just try to really kind of 
uh, I don't know, isolate a little bit these different areas. And maybe, like you said, keep LinkedIn mostly for your corporate stuff. But you can mention that you're an actor in, in your little bio, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but not necessarily link to your acting website there. Um, or maybe say, like, for more information on acting, contact me. Or I don't know. I mean, there's maybe there's a way to slip it in there but not make it the focus of your LinkedIn profile. Mm-hmm. And have mm-hmm. the other stuff be the focus for the acting and just slip in that you're an investment banker or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. I mean, yeah. That's why I was so excited to, to kind of answer it. We should link to Bonnie's article on our website. Oh, yeah, definitely. We'll link to that. And also, uh, perhaps uh, even more importantly, uh, if you have an opinion on this, um, call us, write in, you know, respond to uh, Mickey's question. We, we, we would really love to, to turn this into a conversation. I feel like it's very subjective. I feel like everybody's going to have a different opinion on this. So yeah. we'd love to know what our, our listeners' um, consensus is on this. Yeah. We should totally put a little discussion or something on our Facebook page. And get stir the pot a little bit and see what people's thoughts are here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. let's get it going. Cool. Well, thanks for the question, Mickey. Hope that helps. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, "What? You didn't answer it at She's all." She's like, "I'm worse off now." <laughs> yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks. <laughs> uh, should we roll into this interview? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, uh, uh, this is our interview with um, screenwriter, producer, producer's rep, uh, Tim Morell of Morell Media. So, enjoy. <laughs> Hi, what's up, guys? Uh, this is AJ. I'm sitting down today with Tim Morell, who's someone that uh, Nelson and myself met at the Showbiz Expo last week, and um, we're very excited to have him on the podcast to talk about uh, film distribution and um, you know the state of the industry, uh, where he's seen it um, in the past, where he sees it going now, and um, as well as just a, a breadth of, of experience that he brings to the table. So we're really excited to have him. So thank you so much for being here, Tim. Oh, really thank you for it. having me. I'm, I'm flattered that you asked. So um, with all of our guests, we just kind of like to get, um, uh, you know, right from the beginning, kind of what brought you into this business and, um, and sort of hear from you, um, you know, why you're here. What is it that, that drew you to the entertainment industry and, and, and where you got your start? Well, it's it's kind of a long story, actually. I mean, I started out in high school, <clears throat> and like a lot of kids that age, I was sort of trying to figure out what the next step was, you know, what career interested me and where I wanted to go. And, and I remember thinking, well, maybe I'll be an architect. And so I took a drafting class, and I remember sitting in class one day working on a – laboriously working on an exploded version of a nut and bolt – and the kid sitting next to me, who was like two grades behind me, had this beautiful like three-level house he designed. And I'm thinking, wow. well, you know, this is not going to cut it. And um, I don't have the skill set for this. And so a friend of mine said, well, you know, you need an English credit for your last year, right? I said, yeah, yeah. I said, well, you ought to get on the stage crew. And I said, yeah, sure, why not? So I go down to the stage the first day of class, and they had this big, heavy fire door. So, you know, you kick on the fire door and get in. And I walked in, and it, it leads right in direct, directly behind the stage. And it was one of these old WPA schools. You know, it was like really elegantly built and had murals everywhere and a concrete stadium. And, and so I stepped into this place, and the work lights were on, and the flies were up. And, the, and I thought, oh, 
yeah, this feels good. <laughs> and that was kind of the beginning and the end. And then um, for reasons that aren't worth going into, I said, you know, theater's not going to cut it. I said, oh, I'll go in the film business. I mean, it's like one of those like simple but complex decisions that you sort of wake up and think, God, what was I thinking? You know? <laughs> and um, I thought, well, I could always write a little bit. So I'll, I'll become a screenwriter. I mean, again, it's like one of those sort of off-the-cuff decisions that you sort of make that kind of shape how your life goes. And um, so I started writing screenplays. And I could always write and I always could put a sentence together. And I'd come up with some ideas that I liked and came to town and started knocking on doors with this script that I had. It was a sort of a adventure fantasy script. And started knocking on doors. And this was at the time when you could actually get agents to talk to you you know, without having to jump through a lot of hoops. I mean, I actually had people pick up the phone who were not secretaries and not receptionists and wow. not assistants and not gatekeepers. You could actually pick up the phone and say, oh, I got the script I want to send you. So, yeah, sure, send it over. And, and one of the, the sort of the weird happenstances of the industry, I was in a bookstore one day and was talking to a guy that I'd seen around and about. And he said, well, you know, I've seen you all around now. I says, what do you do? I mean, you must do something other than, you know, just have a job and all that. I said, well, you know, I'm trying to be a writer. He says, oh, really? I said, well, I'm always on the lookout for writers. So what do you got that I can read? And so I sent him this script. So he took it over to someone he knew at 20th Century Fox. And the guy just flipped for it. They invited me in uh, for an interview. So I went out. I, I distinctly remember. It's just like it was in Beverly Hills, right? And I'm, I'm, driving, I'm driving to Beverly Hills down Santa Monica Boulevard. And there's this big rainbow that ends up right in Santa Monica, you know, right at, right on the top of the William Morris Agency. I thought, oh, I've arrived, you know, I've, I've done pot, it. It's the pot of gold. Yeah, it is. It absolutely was. I mean, I thought, what a perfect metaphor, you know. So, so I go in and meet with this guy, and it's clear that he hasn't, like, read anything, but his secretary has read it. And someone's told it it's good, so he's taken their word for it. Um, and he says, well, you know, we do this thing called co-agenting, and, you know, I, I'm just here to kind of get a feel for you and what you want to do, and then I'm going to bring you in. I'm going to introduce you to James Cameron's agent because Cameron had just come off of Terminator, and um, he was getting all these offers to do work, which he didn't want to do. But Morris didn't want to give away all those commissions, so they were looking for someone to kind of step in and take on all those assignments. And so he sort of laid the groundwork, and then I, you know, the day came, and I had to meet Jim Cameron's agent, right? So I go in and sit down, and the first thing she says is, you know, I was talking to the head of Paramount today, and he said, there's a script going around town that I need to read. And it was your script. I said, oh, really? Well, that's pretty cool. <laughs> and, uh, and it went, went downhill from there. You know, I mean, we just didn't hit it off at all. And so that didn't really work out. And then I signed with another agency who uh, was a, one of the top boutique agencies at the time. So I go in and sign with him. And, you know, he gives me his whole sales pitch and... Ultimately, he decides that, you know, he takes the script, goes off to Cabo San Lucas for a week with everything else that I've written and all the ideas that I have, comes back. He hates everything else I've done and won't send out the script he does like until I, I come up with something that he thinks he can sell. And that was one of my first real educations in the business, you know, because a lot of people come in and they think, oh, yeah, an agent represents me. No, he doesn't represent you. He represents your script. And that's the, that's the most important lesson you can learn about an agent or a manager is they're there to represent your script. But anyway, it went on like that for a few years. I got an agent with every script I ever wrote. All the scripts were completely different. 
none of the agents I signed with liked any of the other scripts I wrote. <laughs> and so I just was, was getting confused by the whole process. And then, so finally I, I went out and pursued other things and I came back into the end of the industry uh, as a producer's rep about seven years ago. And I did that for seven years or six and a half years. And then uh, decided it was time to move out of that realm and try and actually put some of my scripts back into the marketplace. And so that's kind of where I'm at right now. So for our listeners who don't know, tell us what a producer's rep does. Okay, producer's rep is someone that a producer will hire to find distribution for their completed film. I mean, that's sort of the basic gist of it. They take finished films and find homes for them. The level that I was working at was mostly low-budget films, uh, mostly under a million, sometimes as high as five million, but mostly uh, under a million, mostly around 250000 or 500000 mm-hmm. And were you sort of um, working independently, or did you have a team? Did no, you- I worked with a producer's rep in town and uh, was... Uh, so was part of that that company's team. I, I wasn't doing it independently. Okay, okay, right on. <clears throat> what sort of work does a producer's rep put into? I mean, like t- like seriously, nuts and bolts. Like what what are you doing on a day to day basis? Well, essentially, it's once once if somebody is signed with us to to take a film on, what we do is try and figure out who the best place is for that film um, in terms of distribution, where it might fit in. Is it something we can sell to the and, – and, and like any place, we start from the top and work down. You know, you sort of have this checklist of places where you, you know you're going to get the most money or the most exposure. And, and so you, you try and obviously put films there first. But if they're not that quality, then you sort of work your way down the list and try and figure out, well, what's going to be an optimum solution for this? Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, cable TV was always nice because – they paid their licensing fees pretty quickly, and and you know they were significant. I mean, maybe not enough to get back the the cost of your movie, but they offered the best exposure mm-hmm. because outside of the networks, which we didn't deal with at all, uh, or the major studios, cable TV is probably the most reaches the most amount of people. So you're talking like HBO? Yeah, HBO. I mean, we sold things to HBO and and uh, Star. No, not Stars. Uh, Showtime. And lifetime. Now, people people don't. You don't have to go seeking the films, right? People come to you. Oh yeah. Well, seeking, I mean, no, you do seek them out. I mean, right? yeah. I mean, you have to look, go looking because everyone's looking, and that's that's sort of the challenge of the business. I mean, everyone's looking for the next paranormal activity. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants a film that they can pick up for three hundred thousand and make a hundred million on. Right. You know, everyone wants. Uh, Blair Witch. Everybody is looking for My Big Fat Greek Wedding, which mm-hmm. had a higher, you know, obviously had a higher budget, but the return on that was terrific. I mean, like something like $250 million right. or something. Right. So that's, that's really good value. Mm-hmm. But everybody is looking for those. Right. And, and everybody meaning like the well, producers, all the studios, the studios, no, all the stu- the, studios, studios, studios to pick up stuff, um, pr- other producers' reps, um, you know, anyone who thinks that, that there's, a, there's money to be made. Mm-hmm. On, on a picture like that, mm-hmm. and and the and the good and the good reps and the and the good acquisitions people and all and all the independent and all the distribution companies that you're going to have acquisitions people who are looking for those things, you know. So a producer's rep is just part of that process. They're just one of the tools that they have. I mean, I know one guy in acquisitions who 
has developed a lot of relationships with people in production houses and post houses. Mm -hmm. uh, so they can give him a heads up if they end up working on anything that he thinks he ought to, they, he ought to see. Yeah, to take a look at. Right? Yeah, and so, I mean, it's really about developing all these relationships. And obviously, you know, they develop uh, contacts within all the fe festival markets, mm -hmm. you know, so they know what's going on there. And so people will give them a heads up as to right. decent material that's coming to the festival. So this is actually a perfect segue because the reason I mm -hmm. asked the previous question is because we just had a, a question come in um, from one of our listeners, actually, um, whose name is Christina Lloyd on Twitter. And she said, uh, hi, Tim, do you find most films by word of mouth, film fests, producers, reps, or blind submissions or other? So I, we're kind of already on this subject. Um, and being that as of right now, where you're sitting, you're talking from the point of view of a producer's rep. So I guess I could kind of flip this around and say like, where does the, um, you know, how, how do the films come to you? But I think you just answered that question, all of the right? Above, they, yeah. All of the above, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I mean, because the company I worked for was actively trolling the festival markets. You know, they would get list of all the films submitted. They would get list of the people who made them. They would, you know, email them sort of form letters and say, well, you know, we're producers reps. If you're interested in having your film rep, you know, please contact. Da, 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 da. And, you know, people would, would find the company, you know, people who were looking for producers or reps would contact us and say, we'd like to send you a film, but it's, it's a, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of, it's very, that's the most labor intensive part of it. Finding something that's worth representing that mm -hmm. you can, that you can look at and say, okay, yeah, I, I can do something with this. And a lot of times it's just not the case. Right. And, and in, in those cases, those probably those people probably came to you yeah. right with yeah. their film. Yeah. That's where the sort of moral dilemma comes in, and you kind of talked about this at the Showbiz Expo, um, where you know the producer rep does not necessarily have any um, the accountability, right? Like they don't necessarily have to achieve a certain result. No, no. Most of them will include some sort of no result clause in their, in their contract, you mm -hmm. know, that they don't guarantee results and that, you know, you can't be held responsible if nobody wants to buy your film. We'll take your money, but we can't be responsible if no one wants. Your right. Film. So, so, so walk us through that. So I, I, I just finished a film feature film, of course, just like every other person on the face of the planet, I think it's the best movie that's ever been made. And I come to you and I pay you. Well, it depends. I mean, I've heard there are companies that call it charge 5,000, there's companies that charge 10,000, there's companies that charge 15,000, there's companies that charge 25,000. Depends on the level you're talking about. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're probably talking about, you know, five to 10,000, mm -hmm. realistically, for the level of a $250,000 film. I mean, that's probably reasonable. So um, I come to you, pay five to ten thousand dollars, and then you take the film, and that's when you start sort of going after these different uh, yeah, yeah. Well, distribution I mean, methods. Yeah, I mean, and it helps... Like every other part of the industry, the you know the distribution part is really contracting, and there's sort of more and more power in the hands of fewer and fewer people. I mean, people who can actually get things done, mm -hmm. and films that can actually see any kind of a back end. I mean, that's what you're that's what you're looking for as a producer's rep. Something that'll generate more income than what you get out of your retainer's fee. So. Um, but the fact is that because of the way the technology is evolving in terms of video downloads and, and VOD and the internet, that the market is really contracting, uh, even at the same time it's expanding into all these other 
other areas of new mm-hmm. technology, new media. Mm-hmm. It's also contracting in terms of the traditional way that you would go. Because one of the one of the foundations of the producers' right business of the early distribution was the straight to video. You know, there was a time when uh, you could have kind of a low budget film of a certain genre with a certain level of cast that you could put into the straight to video market and, you know, maybe make your money back or see some sort of a return. But that's changing now. I and mean, one of the things I mentioned at Showbiz Expo is that when I moved into my neighborhood, you know, 20 years ago, there were 15 video stores within a two mile radius of where I live. Now there's one. Mm-hmm. So that begs the question, you know, what is the market for your film? Well, yeah, and that and that would, I guess, be a, a good natural next question, which would be, um, you mentioned <clears throat> cable television. What are some of the other um, uh, distribution paths that, that you tried then? And what has changed well, since you the, maybe the real, started as a producer? Well, the real market was always the overseas market, you know, because there was a big passion for American-made films. I mean, you could make a low-budget horror film or low-budget action picture, again, with a certain level of cast. And you could sell it in the overseas markets, and you could probably do okay, you know. But that's changing a lot, too, insofar as, again, for new media reasons. But sort of an idea that I have, which I cannot back up with any sort of statistical analysis or anything else, is that as the technology has become more available to people to make films, and you can now shoot on a digital camera that you can buy for a few thousand dollars mm-hmm. rather than like a, you know, like a 35 millimeter camera or whatever, um, that that technology is allowing people in other countries who might not have had access to it before to now make their own films. They can make their uh, own low-budget films. So you think they're being more homegrown? Why not? You yeah. know, I mean, why not build up your own industry rather than keep bringing a content of similar quality yeah. from America? Well, and potentially tell local stories. Yeah, yeah. I mean, something that more fits in with, with your culture and what you're doing. You're talking about a whole generation now of kids who are going to be the up-and-coming filmmakers have been raised on Twitter, been raised on Facebook, been raised on, you know, taking pictures with their iPhone. I mean, the whole just mindset about technology is Mm -hmm. so different now than it was from my age. I was talking to someone at AFM last year, and we were talking about um, the whole new media thing. And I said, well, you know, you could be able to download a, a film to your iPhone. And I said, who'd want to watch a film on their iPhone? I said, well, you'd be surprised. A lot of kids... They don't have the concept of going to the theater that you have. I mean, they get their information in different ways. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that may be the new, the new face of it. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I wonder, I, I'm really curious about this because I was going to ask you this question, but we just keep coming back to digital media and new media. What else has changed? I mean, in your point of view, from the time you, um, either from the time you got into the industry or the time where you started as a producer's rep till now, what else has changed besides like this massive move in terms of the way that people consume their media? The, the dynamic that drives how movies get made at the studio level is completely different now than what it was even 20 or 30 years ago. In what ways? Well, there is a, a, a cost-benefit analysis thing that's going on that is just sort of disheartening. You know, I mean, the creative element seems to have come out of it in some level. And, I mean, I remember I was on a panel a few years ago and I was talking to a guy who was a a lawyer at um, one of the sort of second-tier studios. 
and he was talking about how they had this program, this computer program, that they would take a genre and they, and they, and they have values assigned to all these various actors, you know, like your A-list actors mm-hmm. and the B-list actors. And, and they have like values attached to them. And they have values attached to the genres, and they have values attached to this element and that element. And they, were, they have these algorithms that they put into the computer program, and it tells them what they can make that movie for and essentially turn, ha- a, profit. turn a profit. You've got to be kidding me. No, I was shocked by that. I was shocked by that. It's a math problem. Too. Yeah, it is. And I'm thinking, you know, 40 years ago, Robert Evans decided to take a chance on an inexperienced director who wanted to do a pulp novel and star an actor that nobody had ever heard of. And he had an instinct about it that said, go ahead, make that movie. And it turned into The Godfather, which is arguably one of the greatest movies out of American cinema. It just makes me scratch my head a little bit because you want it to be more than that. You know, you want it to have want a different, it to be more than a math problem. Yeah, you want it. You want it to have a different dynamic. You want it to be about the creativity. It that that's the kind of thinking that makes me actually um, proud, impressed, hopeful for these sort of um, you know, for lack of a better word, mini studios or these you know production companies that are that are uh, popping up. Um, it's sort of becoming this sort of grassroots storytelling effort by young uh, up and coming filmmakers to kind of do their own work and make those hopefully make those films that will make you think um or um you know have something to say and aren't just like a, a huge well, summer hope. summer blockbuster I mean, you hope but i mean it's hard to find good material anymore it's hard to find people that have a clear voice i mean one of the films i liked a lot in the last few years was frozen river mm-hmm. which i thought was a really good example of a of an independent film that kind of found its way. And I was really surprised when I was looking at the box office of that, that it had not done as well as I thought it would. I mean, but technically or theoretically, I mean, what's a better outcome for an independent movie? You know, you make an independent movie, probably for under a million, you cast it with stars who are recognizable from like law and order. And your lead actress gets an Academy award nomination. I mean, you know, you win, you know, it gets like attention at Sundance and she gets an Academy Award nomination and you still only take in two million at the box office. So, you know, it's tough, tough. But I, I suspect that film did pretty well in, in, in DVD. Hmm. So, yeah, well, after the nominations and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that maybe was the market for it. a lot of people who missed it in the theaters and would go back and look at it. So hopefully it did well in the end and hopefully everybody got their money back. So, being that you basically you were you know looking through a lot of these films you know and and seeing what was coming down the pipeline from independent filmmakers and whatnot what are your thoughts on you know some of these digital distribution tools um versus say submitting for a festival run specifically for people who are up and comers you well, know, let's, you know, let's always, say somebody has uh, a decent story. Let's say they don't even have a brilliant film. Let's say they don't have a frozen river. Let's say they have, you know, a decent uh, uh, a film with a decent story. Um, you know, what what kind of uh, what kind of advice do you have? Well, for clearly, them? you know, the, the way to go now still is, is festivals. Because at least you get people looking at it, at least you get a chance to maybe pick up some some recognition. 
the depending on the festival is not going to help you. You know, I mean, if it's a small festival that nobody's ever heard of and you win best, best picture, that's great, but it's not really going to help you at the distribution end really. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's nice. I mean, it's nice to get that validation and it's nice to get people aware of what you're doing and it's nice to build up your kind of fan base. I mean, I was, I was at a panel and I heard a public relations person speak. She was really bright and, and whole, and her whole thing was the goal for, for any new filmmaker is to build up their social media connections, to create awareness of what they're doing with as many people as they can through like Facebook or whatever other media they choose. And that helps create your identity within your potential base audience. So even if you don't have anything right now, by putting films out there, by expanding your list of contacts, you create an awareness of who you are and what you're doing within that world. And then if there's ever a way to monetize it, which there isn't right now, um, then you're, you know, you've laid some groundwork, you know, you, you've got something mm-hmm. that you can pull on. I mean, if you get like five or six or 10,000 fans on Facebook, then that's potentially a core audience. I mean, that's someone who's interested in what you're doing and interested in the stories you have to tell. Right. And that's something you can build on. Um, but, Right now, I, I don't know of any way to monetize it that makes sense. Right. That's yeah. That, and we that is something we've <clears throat> talked about both on and off the air as a as a as a podcast and as a as a production company because um, our co-host Trevor, myself, our producer Nelson do have a production company now. Um, you know, is that is sort of the the wild west, the unanswered the unanswered question. And, and then getting back to what you were just saying about marketing. One of the things that Nelson and I really uh, that really stuck out to us when we were uh, listening to your panel uh, was that quote that you had. You know, I'd rather have a, uh, oh, I'd rather have a, a bad movie with uh, yeah. you know somebody in it, meaning a, a celebrity or, or or somebody well known, a recognizable name, than a than a bad than a, than a good a movie, good with, movie nobody. with nobody in yeah. it, right? Um, yeah. So, what are some? I mean, is there anything else that someone can do besides casting? You know. A, no, a name no, actor no, casting that. is really the key right now because there's so many films out there. The only way you can differentiate your, your action picture from somebody else's action picture in the eyes of a distribution company mm-hmm. is how can I sell it? What can I put into a 30 second clip that is going to get a buyer from Italy or France or Asia to say, I want that movie for mm-hmm. my market. I mean, that's obviously the the natural next question is how does one do that? How does one get someone, a name actor, to be in their film? You know, SAG Indy uh, is the place to go for all the kind of deals where you can act, get sort of more recognizable names for less money because actors want to work. You know, their, mm-hmm. their currency is having their face on screen. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's how they make their living. That's how they move ahead. Mm-hmm. And they want to work. You know, that's why you see a lot of people who were sort of on the edge of, of a bigger career, you know, or in a lot of these smaller films now. I mean, if you go to AFM and look at the poster work, I mean, Michael Madsen's in like every movie on the planet over there. You know? <laughs> and, and yeah, he keeps working. You know, he makes his living as an actor. You yeah. know, maybe he's not getting seven, eight hundred, nine thousand, hundred, you know, a role now or whatever he was making. But, um, He's in, he's a face that people recognize and a name that you can, you know, make a movie for at a certain budget. 
Um, what uh, if I don't have an existing relationship with these agencies? I mean, I was in 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 this other um, panel that we were in the 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 um, finding film funding panel. They were talking about similar things about you know. Um, trying to get investors interested in your movie, which is almost the same approach to getting, you know, it's, it, it's all the same stuff. Getting, getting investors interested in your movie is just an earlier step that you are trying the same tactics as you do when you want to get your film distributed. And in this case, we're talking about, you know, name actors. So they were talking about getting your, getting uh, an investor interested in your film because you had a certain actor attached. Yeah, that's, that's so the whole were, chicken and the egg thing. <clears throat> right, yeah. exactly, exactly, which came first. Or just, it's such a catch-22. So uh, one of the things they were saying is uh, in the uh, quote-unquote olden days, you could send um, a, a, a letter to an agent and or send the script to an agent, get them interested, and they could write um, what they were calling, I guess, a soft letter, mm-hmm. where they say like, "Yes, my client is interested in this. If you get the funding, yeah, and then you can take that to an investor, and yeah. the investor yeah, goes, they don't, they don't do that much anymore, right? Right. So it's 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 this these constant constant catch twenty twos. You know, where does one you know uh, put their focus and their energy um, to actually make you know one side or the other you know, flip to make, you know, something happen so that they actually, you know, get in touch with that agency, get in touch with one of their clients, you know, put the script in their hands, say this, this, you know, this movie is made for this person. You know, everybody's got these big dreams, but where does it start? You know, money talks. I mean, that's, that's kind of the bottom line. And a lot of, a lot of your problems are solved by having your financing in place before you go forward, but it's difficult. Um, and I think the key is to be aware of of what you what you need to accomplish on the back end. You know, I, and again, I go back to SAG Indie because they have all kinds of programs that make SAG actors available to you. So, talk nuts and bolts to us. Then, you know, mm-hmm. what is, you keep mentioning SAG Indie. What do mm-hmm. I do? Um, you know, with with regards to those contracts to, to make it happen? Well, again, the contracts are something that goes in place once once you've got your money. I mean, that's, again, the catch of it, is that you have to have your financing in place. Because that because the, the, the SAG Indy contracts are based on your budget. So if you have, you know, $250,000, then that qualifies as a certain level, you know, and, and you owe actors a certain amount of money. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's very low. I mean, it's very affordable. And you you know you factor that in, but mm-hmm. it, but all the contracts are based on having on, on having your financing in place and be ready to, ready to shoot. So again, that's that's the the catch of it. Yeah, because you can't go to them and say, well, you know, let me get an actor and then I'll raise the financing because that's not what they do. I mean, they're just about how to make it possible for their actors to work, right? And be in a position to benefit if the film breaks out and 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 succeeds. Uh, you know, on the back end somewhere, right. which is then when you owe them the bulk of their money. Right. There are two questions that we always ask all of our guests, um, you know, as we, as we wrap it up today. And the first one is, do you feel as though you chose this business or do you feel like this business or this career chose you? Um, I think I was chosen. Um, like I say, I, I had no sort of sense of where I was going 
until I walked into that theater. Mm-hmm. And it's the first place I ever felt at home. I mean, sort of like I had a place in the world. And uh, I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten the feeling I had when I first walked backstage and thought, oh, yeah, this is it. <laughs> and, you know, and my life is sort of what it is because of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I got farther than some, but I had sort of the same frustrations that a lot of people have. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, I was this close to like breaking through, but I couldn't do it. You know, I had a lot of people supporting me. I mean, a lot of people wanting my work. I had people praising me to the skies. And I still couldn't couldn't find the door through that led to the brass ring. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's frustrating, you know. So, yeah, I, I think people are chosen. I'm not sure you have a choice about it. I mean, it's like, oh, yeah, I think I'm going to sleep on this bed of nails, you know. I mean, it just – it's not logical, you know, you you have to. There has to be something inside of you that says, "Okay, yeah, this is this is the path I have to walk," and you do. That's epic. <laughs> Thank you for that. The second question, actually, is it, this is also very um, very much related to what you were just saying, which is, if you could take all of that experience, um, how close you got uh, those those few times with those scripts, um, the doors that were open, the doors that were closed, um, your experiences as a writer, as a producer's rep, um, you know, coming back to writing, um, with the people that you've met, your experiences at, at AFM, the American film market, if you could take all of that and distill it down to one nugget of advice, this is kind of like the, you know, if you were on a desert Island question, um, if you could distill it down to one piece of advice, one resource, one book, one something, what would it be? Well, I, I think it would just be to persevere, you know. I mean, believe in what you're doing and try and believe as hard as it is, as much as the deck is stacked against you. Try and believe that what you're doing is valid and that at some level quality counts. That the work you do, the way you choose to express yourself, that that means something. And try and hold on to that because there's so many people who will try and take that away from you. And, um, you know, you just need to, to persevere and to hold on. I mean, if this is a path you have to walk, I mean, if you have to have to walk it, then, you know, you've got to hold on to it. And not in a self-destructive way. I mean, not in a way that closes off any other opportunity that you might have or any other chance that you might have to, to go and do something else or to, you know, to have a nice life or to do what else. But, you know, if it's important to you, you know, persevere and, and, and hold on to the idea that, that at some small level, you know, quality does matter and, and, you know, the truth will out someday. <laughs> the truth will out. Um, that's beautiful. Thank you. Um, it's very inspiring. Persevere. Appreciate that. Um, and I'm sure our listeners will too. Um, Tim, if, if people want to find out more about you, about, uh, yeah, well, you can media. always, uh, you know, anyone who has a question, uh, can contact me at my email address, which is morel media, M O R E L L media at gmail.com. And I'm always happy to answer questions. I mean, I'm not actively repping films right now. I'm sort of concentrated on trying to get my own projects up, mm-hmm. but, um, I'm always happy to answer questions, uh, if I can. You know, um, it might not be what you want to hear, but I mean, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try and answer them. And, uh, you know, I, I am accessible. I'm not like sort of off the map. 
but again, my experience is sort of very specific. So there's not, I mean, I can't open doors to financing. I can't open doors to agents. I can't open doors to, you know, getting your deal done. But if you have a question that has arisen from this podcast and didn't get answered or that you're going to have a chance to think about it for a day or so. And oh, I wonder what he would have said about that. Then, you know, feel free to, to contact me and let me know. Thank you. We very much appreciate that. We'll definitely put the, the email address on the, um, on the, on the, on the, uh, on right, our website. Right. Um, and then Morel media is on, is on LinkedIn. People yeah. yeah I'm, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm working on getting a webpage up. Well, thank you so much. Well, no, for being thank here, you. Tim. We really appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners are going to get a lot out of it. If you guys have more questions, uh, feel free to uh, email Tim or you can email us at, or, or call us, uh, leave us a voicemail. Um, and we can, you know, maybe get in touch with uh, Tim as well and have him back on to answer those questions. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of stuff to talk about. We talked for, you know, uh, a half hour before we started recording. I'm sure we'll talk after I uh, hit the stop button here. Um, but we really appreciate you uh, coming. No, in. absolutely. I'm always happy to come back if you have cause for it. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, all right, guys, we'll see you on the other side of this music. All right, guys, welcome back. Um, so <laughs> if you thought that was interesting, uh, there was so many... Th- Tim and Nelson and myself, Nelson was there when we were doing this interview and the three of us had some very, very interesting discussions when the, when the cameras quote unquote weren't rolling, you know, when we weren't recording and, um, a couple of the just gems that I took away from, from, from Tim. Uh, there's one where he said, uh, we were talking about, I can't remember exactly what, what, what there was something specific we were talking about. We were talking about like, all of these businesses and people who um, make a living on selling people the dream. You know, we've talked about this mm-hmm. on the podcast before. Yeah. People who like... Um, and I'm instantly riled up about <clears throat> it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like to sell people uh, the rules, yeah. you know, as Mark Atterbury calls them. And um, and just, I'd never heard anybody put it this way, but he, Tim said, yeah, there's the, it's so insane that there's this entire industry of the industry. Hmm. Right. He was basically yeah. saying like, there's this industry of how to get, be in the industry. There's this industry of how to built around how to exist or make it or whatever in the industry. Yeah. You know, the industry of the industry. Um, I thought that was really fascinating. And the other thing that I kind of wanted to talk to you about, since I wasn't there for your interview and you weren't there for this interview, how different this guy is from Kit. Yeah. And they're different sort of um, points of view. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. whereas you know, um, uh, you know, Tim took takes inspiration in in such a different way than she does. You know, his approach to um, to the work and what he does is it's just they're they're such you know stark contrast from from one another, and yet I feel both you know are uh, successful at what they do. It's just. Fascinating, yeah. fascinating. Just, just goes to show that there's no one right approach. You know, yeah. that's what's so fascinating and <clears throat> wonderful about art is that it's just so subjective. It's like the different, uh, the different characters that have come on to you know our podcast. You know, yeah. I feel like we're creating this very interesting cast. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Cool. So, um, picks of the week. P O. You got W P O T Dubs. P O T Dubs. P O 
pot dubs. Pot dubs. What? What? All right. What's your uh, What's your pot dub? Oh man, it's terrible. <laughs> it was awful. What's your pick of the week? Uh, my pick of the week is the Four Hour Body by Timothy Ferris. Uh, Trevor's pick of the week a long time ago was the Four Hour Work Week. Mm-hmm. which is also by Tim. Um, you made that a pick of the week a long time ago. Um, and uh, I just picked up, well, um, we got, Nelson and I bought this for, or Nelson bought it for Trevor for, for I think, Christmas. And then um, Nelson bought himself a copy. But um, it, it's really fascinating because it's like, well, first of all, for anybody who doesn't know who Tim Ferriss is, he's sort of the self-described life hacker. That's like his his thing. It's like he's trying to find the most efficient way of doing something, which is why his first book was called The 4-Hour Workweek. It's yeah. the idea being that you could work four hours a week and, you know, yeah. be a, a six-figure, have a six-figure income and, and travel the world and, and have no worries. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm still reading that one. This one's different in, in in a number of different ways. The not the least of which being that it's more about you know you as a human being and trying to figure out the most efficient way of doing things as a human being. In other words, the most efficient way to burn fat, the most efficient way to gain muscle mass, the most efficient way to sleep. There's a whole chapter on how to get like two hours of sleep a night and feel rested. There's a whole chapter on having better sex. There's a whole chapter on... Just yeah, turned you just turned to it. There it is, improving sex. There's a whole section on, on just that. So it's like body hacking, really. Yeah, so it's yeah. So his he's a self-described life hacker, and this is like his body hacking book. And... Um, it's it's not meant to be read cover to cover like the four hour work week sort of is. I mean, there's se- you can take sections out of that and still get stuff something out of them. But that's more of a book that you would read cover to cover. Whereas this one is more of uh, Nelson likes to call it, it's more of like a cookbook, hmm. right? Where you go to yeah. certain sections, knowing what you want to create, and then you sort of glean from that what you will and and put it into practice. I'm trying uh, something that, that he describes in there called the slow-carb diet, which is about essentially um, changing your body composition so that you're basically filling your body with mostly proteins and, no, and absolutely no carbs or dairy or oats. And the reason that I'm making this my pick of the week is because in l- like less than four days of trying it out, I can already feel a difference. Really? Yeah. And I have, I'm, I'm not like crazy about, you know, pounds and stuff. I'm not measuring, you know, how much I weigh and, and whatnot, mostly because I'm also working out. So I'm putting on muscle mass, which is like going to counteract right. any weight loss. Yeah. But it's more about the fact that like, I just feel different, you know, and I can tell that it is actually having an effect on my body. And, um, it's great. The way that he writes is, 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 is very straightforward. Um, very, uh, uh, accessible, you know, he, he's like, he jokes around a lot in there and, um, you know, um, makes you feel like it's something that can be done. And when I started it, like, like I said, I started to feel better immediately. And Nelson said something to me that just like baked my noodle, which he said, he said, see, he's like this whole time, like, isn't it so crazy that it was this easy the whole time Hmm. and all you had to do was just do it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess, <laughs> you know, maybe you feel like poop, but it's totally true. Like all I had to do was just, just do it, do just it. make it yeah. happen. And, yeah. um, it just goes to show one of the things that I also like about it is it just goes to show how much of the way we look has, has to do 
how much more it has to do with nutrition than with working out. Yeah. You know, you can go into the gym and spend 12 hours running on a treadmill and, you know, do 13,000 uh, crunches and it's not going to make a world of difference if you're housing cheeseburgers from McDonald's. Yeah. You know, what's the saying? There's a saying, I think it's abs are made in the kitchen. Nice. I think that's the saying. Nice. Yeah. yeah it's totally true. Love that. Yeah. There's a, there's this crazy picture in that book of this guy who has like a 12 pack and he got it without working out. Really? Yeah, because he yeah. just changed his diet, his, his nutrition. He's not starving himself, but he's just like eating these very specific fat-burning foods. Mm-hmm. And so, because we all have, you know, muscles under there. It's just that yeah. they're covered in a layer of flab. Right, right. <laughs> For most of us, unlike Trevor, <laughs> he's like an Adonis. I'm sorry, well, I didn't hear what you just said there. What, what am I like? Asshole. I said. <laughs> This other A word. Um, what's your awesome. pick of the week, man? Uh, well, my pick of the week is another kind of how-to book. Uh, this one is a, a kind of a classic, actually. It's called The Richest Men in Babylon. It's by a guy named George S. Clayson. Clason, maybe, is how you say it. I don't know. We'll link to it on the website. But um, it's a little, it's a short little book on personal finance, and it just it's told through these kind of ancient Babylonian parables. Like he, it's really, it's, it's hard to explain, but I mean, he, he basically each, each kind of lesson on personal finance is told through this kind of ye old English speak via like in, in like a, in like a Babylonian setting. So it's like in ancient Babylon, there was this man and he was a fur trader and, and like, but everything's told like, it's almost like biblical the way it's written in terms of the language at least. Um, but anyway, it, which which probably lends to it some sort of mystique. Like you're like, oh, this is hidden secret ancient knowledge about, <laughs> about how to become wealthy. Um, but really, it just it's just just like brass tacks, like you know, nuts and bolts personal finance stuff. Like save ten percent of what you make. Um, and there were and there were a couple really. But the way he, I think I think what's interesting about this is the way he frames some of these lessons. He puts them in such a way. That for me, it kind of, it just really clicked, you know, that this is just an offshoot of a lot of personal finance reading I've been doing lately. Dave Ramsey's book was my previous pick of the week, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was another book that just kind of, I knew these things, but he framed it in such a way that I was like, yeah, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and one of the things that really baked my new one here is he, he had a guy, a guy talking to another guy and the one, one guy had a lot of money and the other guy had no money. And uh, the one guy who had a lot of money told a story about how he used to not have money and how he was a slave and he worked his way up through the slavery. And hit the big lesson that, that sticks in my head from that whole little story was to make work your friend. And that, for some reason, just stuck with me. I was like, oh, yeah, because nobody likes to work, right? But it's like if you just make work your friend and just do the best you can possibly do with whatever you do and just be like – you know, we're here for life together, me and work, making enough so you can save some, so you can pay off all your debts, so you can invest some and start having your money work for you. It's the way he put it was just like, Wah. so, um, highly recommended. I got this on paperback swap, um, for nothing, but I think you can get a used copy on Amazon for like 50 cents. This book was published in like the twenties. So that's awesome. It's really good stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of different ways that um, you guys who are listening can get in touch with us and support the podcast. Um, you can find us online at InsideActingPodcast.com and send us an email if you'd like at InsideActingPodcast at gmail.com. We welcome all comments, questions, criticisms, uh, and compliments. I think we're on potentially every social network uh, of relevance these days. Facebook.com uh, slash We're not on LinkedIn. 
uh, we're not on LinkedIn. <laughs> not on LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> wow, that's hilarious. Twitter.com <laughs> slash inside acting or our individual accounts. I'm at twitter.com slash digital actor. I'm twitter.com slash Trevor Algott. You can find us on Actor Rated and iTunes where you can um, uh, rate the podcast and leave a little review. Um, just do a search for inside acting on both those sites. Uh, you can find us on dig.com. We are dig.com slash, I believe, inside acting. Right? Pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's our, our username anyway, so it might be like dig.com slash users slash yeah. inside acting. Um, and you can also call us and leave a voicemail on the podcast, as Nikki did this week. Uh, the number is 213-2-ACTORS. That's 213-222-8677. And nice. then last but not least. Last but not least, don't forget about uh, uh, the two ways that you can financially support the podcast. One, by supporting our sponsors. Um, so head on over to samofourlife.com and don't forget your discount, your uh, Inside Acting exclusive discount, Acting 101, Acting 101, which gets you 15% off of everything on their site. And, of course, you can also donate to the podcast directly. There's two ways to do it. You can send us a lump sum donation through PayPal. Um, any amount is appreciated. Even a dollar would go a long way for us. Uh, or you can do a recurring monthly donation. Uh, we have a couple different levels set up for a monthly subscription type thing. But it's 3 5 10 and $20. You can cancel at any time. And with both of those kind of donations, remember to hang on to your receipts because you can write every expense or every donation, I should say. You can write every donation to the podcast off as a, an education expense for your career. And while we're on the subject of money, I guess we might as well go ahead and mention um, the uh, Kickstarter campaign, right? Yeah, yeah for, let's uh, go for it. This is, not, this is not affiliated with the podcast beyond uh, AJ and I's involvement with the project. Yeah. So, so you're not supporting the podcast by supporting the pro- well, you kind of are, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> you're supporting us. It. You're supporting yeah. us, I guess. Um, yeah, basically, we just uh, for those of you who've been listening to the podcast for a long time, you remember um, we did the War Cycle last summer, Gospel According to First Squad, which was the uh, the, the the show in which uh, Trev and I basically played opposite one another, um, sort of opposing uh, forces in that play. Um, is now about to receive its world premiere and we uh, we have a Kickstarter campaign going for it. So if you saw it um, and you loved it and you want to uh, support it early on, go on and, and check out the incentives. Um, we'll have a link on our website. But, um, you know, at like the second level, you get like either discounted tickets or tickets to opening night or something yeah. like that. So, you know, we'd love for you to come out and see it again if you if you didn't get a chance to see it last summer. Or if you haven't seen it, you know, just kind of supporting the, the work that we do um, outside of the podcast, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess if you can just go to, well, we'll just have a link on our website. For yeah. It. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So check it out at InsideActingPodcast.com. We'll have a link underneath the uh, this episode and yeah. possibly in the banner later. Yeah, there's an awesome video that you guys should check out too. It's really yes. cool. Yeah, really yeah. Cool. And some some dude you all know edited it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, check it out and thank you for listening, everybody. I think that does it for episode 54 of Inside Acting. Uh, I'm Trevor Algon. I'm AJ Meyer. We'll see you next week. And in the meantime, make work your friends.